This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. Bitcoin prices are falling. The love. We love Bitcoin. Love. We don't love Bitcoin. We we're love an, Bitcoin. We're in after the love has gone situation here. Uh, help us figure out what's going on with the, the uh, dramatic uh, uh, decrease in the value of cryptocurrencies. Rob Urban joins us right now. Bloomberg News senior financial editor and Camila Russo, Bloomberg News cryptocurrencies reporter. Um, uh, Camila, let me start with you. What exactly is happening here? Give us a, some context because the volatility in cryptos uh, isn't news. What's news here? Um, I think the news is how how steeply it's fallen. It's down over 50% now from the record last last year in, in December. Um, and also what's news is that now the stakes are bigger because the market cap and price has become um, so, so high. Uh, and, and I think the main driver we can point to is the regulatory concerns. Um, wait, wait, why do you mean the yeah. stakes are higher because the market cap has become so high? Well, b- before it was just, you know, it was a- $1,000 at-, at this time last year. Yeah. So now people are, have, have really poured millions of, of dollars in, in, into the market. So but isn't it still just a few big investors? Like, break down the market for me a little bit, because we, we've had some stories on Bloomberg that said that it's largely dominated by a few large investors. Is that still the case? Yeah, it's, it is still the case, although that's, you know, that's really... Uh, about how little of the of the available Bitcoin is actually trading because those big investors are just holders, you know, a lot, mm-hmm. really really long time holders. Yeah. Uh, the activity that we're seeing, you know, now and over the past year, is in a smaller segment, which also is what makes it, you know, more volatile. What what the estimates uh, show is that around a thousand people control forty percent of the market. So yeah, it is really concentrated. But um, I mean, still, the the other sixty percent is really atomized because it's it's a market made up of retail investors who maybe like pour in a hundred thousand dollars or a thousand dollars or you know like a a, a small or a, just a chunk of their their savings into this. Mm-hmm. So th- we saw this like fourteen hundred percent rise la- last year, and you know now these people stand to uh, you know a lot to lose from from this not if they bought before november 30th i was going to say they're still up a lot right they bought before november 30th they're still up a lot if they bought a year ago they're up 900 percent. yeah which ain't bad um (laughs) i'll take it and and for the most part this is this is um you know purely i I hate to see i I don't know the right words to use i'm going to come up i'll use the wrong words therefore it is purely speculative because bitcoin isn't being used much Ripple is being used, not much. Um, uh, uh, I should say Ripple XRP. Uh, a lot of these currencies aren't actually getting a lot of usage. They are merely, you know, one can call them a store of value, but they really are as a speculative instrument where people are ascribing value. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's true. I, I think it's what's interesting that, that uh, that's happened over the past six months is they they have come more into the public eye, into the purview of regulators, and and 
you know, the meteoric gains. I think the the summer it was what about five thousand or four thousand, and um, uh, as they inter- as uh, you know. Uh, Bitcoin futures were introduced as uh, as other derivatives were introduced, and professional investors got more involved. More hedge funds got started. Regulators mm-hmm. started paying a lot more attention, and now regulatory concerns are the primary uh, driver, as as Camilla was saying. Well, what's uh, interesting uh, too is that when you've seen kind of pullbacks, right? You've seen investors kind of come in and just kind of continue to propel it higher, but we're not kind of seeing that, Rob, right now. We're not necessarily seeing investors coming in to kind of buy on the dip, if you will. Well, Mike Novogratz actually predicted it would fall to 8,000. Of course, he also predicted it would go up to 40,000. <laughs> he also said he was opening up a hedge fund based on cryptocurrencies. <laughs> and then, you know, so on the day that he said that he wasn't doing that, uh, he's predicted it would fall to 8,000. I, you know, there's been so many comparisons whether, you know, is this a Bitcoin bubble? Is it akin to what we saw in the dot com era? Is it similar to. Uh, the mortgage melt up, if you will, and the financial crisis. Or, you know, sometimes I look at it, I say, should we, getting rid of the value of it, but do we look at it like a penny stock, you know, because we just kind of like don't know yet. I like the dot com analogy. I always like Why? That. Well, because uh, everybody uh, was concerned. Well, it was an equity bubble. Everybody was concerned that, uh, um, you know, it would bring the world crashing down. And instead, it gave us the internet, you know. And so, uh, you know, yes, pets.com. Well, gave us shareholders both. lost their money, but. It but, gave us both. I mean, what, what people are betting on is finding the next Google and Facebook. And yeah, people are saying Bitcoin is the largest one. So that's probably going to be the winner out of all of this. And then probably 99% of the smaller tokens and digital assets as, what, that we saw spring up last year, those will probably die off. Is it FOMO, the fear of missing out in terms of, I know we talked about that being, you know, describing the equity market last week here at Bloomberg, but I just do wonder, all the people that you guys talk to when it comes to digital currencies and blockchain, um, is it just chasing just to make sure they're not missing on something? Or is it people who said, we've looked at this, there is some value here, we just haven't quite all worked it out yet? I think it's it's definitely both uh, and, and, and in very extreme levels. I, I, I speak with people who are purely speculators and just look at these coins as apples and oranges and say, this is cheap today, I'll buy it and, or, and I'll sell it tomorrow. But I also speak with traders who are deeply invested in this thing, that they've been in it since 2013. They haven't ever sold Bitcoin mm. or, or just sell like the necessary amounts to like pay their rent, but they they are really strong believers in this. It's it's actually uh, like a philosophy. It, it goes beyond um, a, a, an interesting trade. It goes into just like a, a, like a right. just deeply rooted belief that right. this thing will change the world. And so, those were the majority of the people up until you started having these massive gains. In, the past, chasing. in the past year, everybody jumped in. Rob Urban, Senior Financial Editor at Bloomberg News, along with Camilla Russo of Bloomberg News as well. This is Bloomberg Radio. So our next guest writes that the business world is stacked against women, and yet there are those that prevail, starting their own companies, rising to senior leadership jobs. Uh, She talked to women who are disruptors, broken that mold to create their own success. Dr. Patty Fletcher is in our New York studio. She's executive in residence at Babson College WinLab Win, which stands for Women Innovating Now. It supports women entrepreneurs. Her book, Just Out, Disruptors, Success Strategies from Women Who Break the Mold. Nice to have you here with Corey and myself. It's great to be here. Thank you. I said to you before we got going, it's such a timely topic, right? Because we're looking at so many 
industries, um, with cases of sexual harassment. And in some cases, you know, you hear those women say how that kept them from advancing. Tell us about your book, why you wrote it, and what you hoped people would get out of it. Absolutely. When we look at the stuff we've seen, right, with the Me Too movement um, over the last few years in, in tech with the calling out of the fact that women only get 2% of venture capital funding, which is very technology-intensive businesses, that yeah. the women are not up in the C-suite, right? So we have this sexual discrimination or gender discrimination to sexual harassment, and it's the same problem. And that problem is those are symptoms. The question we should be asking and what the book addresses is, why is this possible that it's happening at a time where women are 51% of the workforce? So why is it happening? You talk to a lot of women. Absolutely. So it's happening because the systems are antiquated. Who we hire, um, who applies, who gets promoted, all of those things are filled with unconscious bias. There are 150 different unconscious biases that play at our brain at any given time. We don't question them, right? So nobody's interrupted those decisions. So the policies that are in place, the way we think about who we hire, who we imagine we want in a job, we write the job description like that, right? The, the bro culture. But are you saying even women imagine who they want to hire is kind of anti-women? I wouldn't say it's anti-women. Or works against women? It can work against women. Absolutely. We have this, Marissa Mayer, right, when mm -hmm. a few months ago, maybe six months ago, um, had said, look, if you want to be in this industry, you got to work 24-7. And I think, come on, where did that come from? Why is that okay to say? And by the way, not all of us can afford to have nannies. So it's not anti-women, and we need to get away from that. Instead, it's this is how things are. What we need to ask is, why are they still like that? Corey, I'm not ignoring you, the man in the room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> come on Talk in. Talk to about these unconscious biases. I think we're yeah. aware of what conscious bias looks like, and I think that the unconscious bias that people with the best intentions have um, is something that doesn't get enough attention. I, you know, you're absolutely right, Corey. And and it's also a way... See, of, Carol? Yeah. See? <laughs> Why did you do that? All right, shut her mic off. She's done. Good luck with the book. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Out of here. Um, so it's really getting away from blame and shame, number one, right? And this is not to give anyone a break. It's truly, this is the problem that impacts our behavior. So unconscious bias. When we write a job description, which if you are a leader or a hiring manager, it's a rote activity. You basically copy and paste. But if you're hiring for, let's say, a developer position, you tend to put in words that are very bro culture, um, you know, the, the fast pace, the late nights, the being part of. And at my age, right, I'm, I'm in tech. I'm uh, in middle aged, right? And that would totally turn me off from a cultural perspective. On the other side, look at job descriptions for teachers and nurses very female oriented. So there's a ton of research, particularly with this underrepresented population gender mm -hmm. around words. And then let's move next, right? So what we hear a lot from the, the men, um, and this is a, a human problem because it's a workforce challenge. Um, but what we hear is, gosh, I'm really uncomfortable with this topic. Well, maybe that's the reason why when we look at performance reviews, those things that we take in, we as workers take in to say, okay, here are the things I need to work on to get mm -hmm. to the next rung. Women receive vague feedback because chances are they're reporting to a male who feels 
very uncomfortable. Men receive direct feedback. Here are the things you have to do. We we also have, sorry, just one more thing, no, no, especially in tech. Yeah. Um, there's an unconscious bias around women need to be mentored and men need to be championed and advocated for when they're not in the room. And that's really one of the biggest differentiations around, around lifting up. That's huge. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think that's what explains why you don't have a lot of people or women in senior positions at this point? It's such a good question. Because I feel like we've had, I'm I'm not sick and tired of having this conversation, yeah. but we've been having it for an awfully long time. Yeah, I am sick and tired of having <laughs> okay. this conversation. Let's go for it. Let's go for it. It's going to, according to the World Economic Forum, we will not, men and women will not have parity in the workforce for another 150 years, right? It's crazy. My, exactly. Our great-great-grandchildren won't even see it. So, So one of the things is we've been focusing on the wrong stuff. So take this unconscious bias stuff. Elizabeth Cranfield put through her research from, I'm sorry, Elizabeth Helen from Cranfield University did this research where she found that that glass ceiling is placed at the middle manager level. Me, my previous research, always had it up at the top with the mm-hmm. executive position. Mm-hmm. Here's what's important. What's important about that is that middle management layer is responsible for the majority of the workforce. They're the ones using the tools that companies put into place on who they hire, who they promote, right, mm-hmm. how they're developed. And those are rid with unconscious bias, right? So that's a problem. That's why in what we see from a stat perspective is that's when women drop off at that middle manager level. And despite what tech tells us, we like how many times do we read, well, she left to go spend time with her family? No, she didn't. She left because there was no path for her. And that's why women in the tech industry, they start businesses at six times the rate of men. They go off and do it on their own. That's right. Because that's how they really get ahead. That's right. So the, the net net is, and when we look at the other books that are out there, or a lot of them, when we look at the programs that try to fix women to be more like men, right? Mm-hmm. Let's negotiate like a man, let's, yeah, yeah. You know, right? It's focused on the wrong thing. This is not a problem for, for women to fix. This is not a problem for Corey, you alone, to, to fix. We need to look at those managers who are creating the next generation of leaders by promoting them and developing them and giving them different tools that call out the bias, which is well, very tech-intensive. You know, can I just say, too, I was, I was talking to a friend about Carol today, and Carol, I see Carol acting as a mentor to women at Bloomberg and taking young women aside and helping them in tough times and helping them advise them in their careers. And I look at that sort of, you know, no one's asking her to do that, but that's, a, that's you know, taking on that, women taking on that act of mentorship uh, of other young women changes careers and changes lives. And I see other women, you know, who don't do that uh, quite in, in any way. And mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's remarkable to see the difference. It really is. And, and we see that a lot in, it, in like tech, especially, which mm-hmm. I know is, is your audience. We always hear that there are no role models out there. But there's also a has been a dearth of, I'm going to take you under my wing. And chances are that you're doing more than mentoring. You're probably coaching. Mm -hmm. You're probably advocating for these women when they are not in the room, right? And it's really important for women to not only be able to learn from from men, but to learn from women. What do you call Is it sponsors? I think we've had this this conversation maybe with Gloria Larson at Bentley that, you know, you can have a mentor, but then, uh, or some other folks too, but a sponsor is different. This is someone who's saying... You know, there's a meeting where they're not involved and saying, I think you should, this person should get that job. It's, it's different. It's right, more aggressive champion. almost. It's or more assertive. aggressive. Yeah, yeah. And they're championing. Mm-hmm. Good luck with Thank you. your book. Come back and talk to us again. I sure will. Let's Thank hope, you. Let's hope we can move this along. Absolutely.
Because you're sick and tired of having this <laughs> yes, conversation. Yes, I am. <laughs> Disruptors, success strategies for women who break the mold. Dr. Patty Fletcher, executive in residence at Babson College Win Lab, right here on Bloomberg Radio. You say goodbye and I say hello. Yes. As American companies get ready to repatriate profits made overseas back to the U.S., um, there's some interesting things that are going on. It's a big uh, bond exodus, as you will. Um, And I love this story. It's actually among the most read stories on the Bloomberg. Words of caution for all of us. So here to explain, Liz Kappel-McCormick. She's our bond and FX reporter at Bloomberg News. She wrote this story. I didn't explain it well, so you explain it for (laughs) us. Thanks. Hi, Carol. So the thing is with the tax changes, there's a lot of, we've all read about foreign cash overseas, over $3 trillion. But the truth is, a lot of it is actually invested in U.S. securities in treasuries, agencies, corporate bonds, basically as they invested it through some of their foreign subsidiaries, through brokers into U.S. debt. So, so what, it's not really just cash sitting. I, no, I think this is it's kind of a misnomer. Yeah. You know? um, so uh, what a lot of people are saying is with the tax changes, there's no incentive now to keep it kind of hidden offshore. So they'd rather take that money and plow it into doing stock buybacks or increase dividends. And some may say, said even that they might cut their own debt, but their own borrowing. You know what I mean? Why should they borrow as much when they have this big stockpile? So a lot of people in the bond market are saying like, hey, don't miss this on the radar with this repatriation tax changes. We might lose a big buyer, you know, Apple, Microsoft, all these firms. Yeah. So and to that point, like mm-hmm. Mike McKee, our colleague Mike McKee, we were on an email chain this morning within Bloomberg trying to talk about Apple's cash. And Apple has been stating the last couple conference calls how much of the cash is overseas, 94% in the last quarter, about $230 billion. But a lot of that is, what, sitting in a bank account in Germany buying U.S. treasuries. Correct, correct. Buying treasuries and, like we said, corporate bonds. And because they, you know, they didn't have enough reasons to invest directly overseas. They just didn't want to bring the money back because they would have got hit with that 35% repatriation tax. So they funneled a lot of it. I mean, it was all legal. You know, you're allowed to do that and just invested it through their subsidiaries into U.S. debt. So, Liz, talk about how much could be potentially offloaded and what kind of imbalances it might create in the Treasury market. Well, so what we looked at, and um, we have an analyst from Goldman Sachs in here that did a report, too, and they crunched a bunch of numbers as well. And, you know, of the big holders of foreign cash, you know, these with the foreign earnings, the Apple, the Google, Microsoft, et cetera, the the top eight have about two-thirds of that foreign cash. And we kind of ran our own numbers looking at the 10Ks. There's about $500 that these top eight firms have just in treasuries, agencies, and corporate bonds. So a lot of people are saying, while they might not just dump them all right away, though some people are saying they'll sell – in a sense, they if they if when they mature, they won't be buying more. There's really not a lot of need. And that's you know? a big part. They might not be a buyer in the market. Exactly. So w- while some may say, well, maybe they're not going to sell it all right away, there were a big buyer. And you know, Carol, we have a yeah. lot of other stuff going on. The Fed getting out of their Treasury holdings in MBS. We have a lot of supply coming from the Treasury Department with the mm-hmm. new tax bill, worsening deficits. It's kind of like an onslaught of a bunch of things at once that kind of waves the flags that Treasury yields could rise. How ironic know? would that be, right? If you have less revenue coming into the U.S. government because of these tax cuts and, you know, we're going to have economic cycles. And let's say the government gets into trouble where they've got a lot more debt or they need to issue debt. And then they, because of these tax cuts, right. Right. And because of these tax cuts have taken buyers away from the market. Exactly. That's why, you know, we mentioned in the story that a lot of, you know, 
the, the plans for the tax overhaul was it'll help growth, and, and though it may, um, and bring all this money back, part of it, since like we we're saying it's all already in the U.S. Treasuries, it, it may end up giving some upward trajectory to Treasury yields, which who pays for that? You and I, taxpayers, and funding costs, right? So right. it is a little bit funny how the circle goes, right? Well, and I read today that, that uh, something about the way this bill works is called deemed repatriation. Mm-hmm. Which you know, oversimplify, but it essentially means that the government is uh, is going to require companies to report how much tax they overseas and tax them for it uh, at fifteen percent or sixteen percent, whatever it is, fifteen and a half. But they'll be taxed for it whether they repatriate it or not. Exactly. So this is a one-time mandatory, no choice, um, repatriation tax on foreign earnings from post-86 to 2017 through the end. And you're right, that has to be paid. They don't care what you do with the money. It's irrelevant now, right? You just have to pay this bill. So companies are starting to kind of figure out, and some have already earmarked a liability, a future liability for this. But you're right, it's not a choice, and the government doesn't really care what you do with the money. They just want the tax. Can I ask a quick accounting question? Will, mm-hmm. will that liability show up on a balance sheet uh, this year, even before it gets paid? Yes. In fact, some of the experts in our story said for certain firms, you can already see it. Like some have, uh, one of our analysts you know, looked at some of it, have already earmarked some of the liability. So when they announce we, we're going to have to pay, say, $35 billion, they might have already slated, you know, $30 billion for that. So there's just, you know, a four, you know $5 billion But it will more. hurt some companies' borrowing capacity going forward because their balance sheets are going to look worse because they've got this unpaid tax liability. Well, right, um, except, like some people are saying, if they borrow less themselves because they use this kind of cash coffers, yeah. maybe they have to, th- that will help their balance sheet structure, you know, if they have to go out and borrow less money. So we, we have to net-net see how it all plays out. You make us smarter, Liz Cap. McCormick, Bond and FX reporter here at Bloomberg News. This is Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Indeed it will. A drive to the close as we look at what's going on in these markets today. Um, man, forget today. Check this out, Carol. Uh, since uh, today, in 2009, mm-hmm. the market's up 230%, the S&P 500. 230% since 2009. Right. Um, so I wonder, with J.J. Kinahan joining us, Chief Market Strategist at TD Ameritrade, JJ, um, I will um, die of old age before people stop saying markets, bull markets don't die of old age. But, <laughs> but I got it. You know, with this long run, I wonder if there is something to the fact that people just feel like it's been so good for so long it can't possibly continue. Well, I'll tell you. You know, as much as we have been poo-pooing this market for the last, and let's face it, for the last couple of years, it's the amazing market that everyone just wants to call the top on. It continues, and you get days like today where you get a beige book that shows, you know, every region of the country showing growth. Labor market tightening, which will be good for wages and inflation. Housing market tightening. You know, the people we saw from October that 56% of the new homes that had been purchased hadn't even broken ground yet. And retail holiday sales better than anybody expected. So when you see numbers like this, it, it makes sense that the market's rallying like it is. 
Oh, come on. It's just, <laughs> as we said last week, Bloomberg Business Week, the cover, FOMO, fear of missing mm-hmm. out. At this point, um, you know, I was talking to somebody who knows a well-known short seller and saying, of course I'm long now. I mean, like everybody's in this market. They just give it up. Well, at some point, Carol, I do I'm not think saying you it. Is, and that may not, and that may be irrational at this point. I don't know. Well, you know, if, if we're going to talk FOMO, I think we got to talk Bitcoin about three weeks ago. <laughs> but uh, you know, how'd that work out? Yeah. yeah. Well, but but I will say this, Many and that's a much smaller to... market. I mean, the the stock market right. and financial markets are much bigger. They are much bigger. There's no question about it. And that, and a lot of Bitcoin is also newer investors. So, with that said, um, you know, the, the other part of it is. We're looking at earnings. Now, Goldman Sachs threw the market for a little bit of a curveball today, but we had a sense that trading revenues were going to be bad before they came out from the other banks. So I'm really interested as we start IBM tomorrow night to see what these tech earnings are going to look like. And what I would say is if these tech earnings continue to show growth not only in the U.S., but across the world, as they did last quarter, it's hard to argue with that. And then you see something like Apple did today. And again, the tax plan is laid out. That's not a political statement. This is how the tax plan was laid out. And you're starting to see the fruits of it. So when you see plans actually executed as they're supposed to be, it's very difficult not to have faith in the economy and in the stock market. But what a crazy day for Apple. Just since you brought up Apple, um, <laughs> you had two stock analysts kind of headed in opposite directions. You had uh, Apple picking up a rare downgrade, right? On the same day, it got a new target price that exceeded all others on Wall Street. It's just like <laughs> divergence. There it is. Well, you know, it's the old exp- uh, the old expression uh, you start to see divergence on the upside, and on the downside, everything goes to one. <laughs> to start with your earlier comments, yeah. but I will say the the one thing that maybe makes me a little bit I, I was a little nervous on the close last night, just how how the day went. We continue with this great update today, but I look at something like the VIX, and I see that it's basically uh, unchanged, and now it just went positive on the day. You know, so people are buying protection. So to your point earlier that everybody's buying in, they may be buying in, but they're also buying protection. That also convinces me that we can continue to go higher, and they're not buying protection at nine and a half anymore. They're buying protection up near twelve. You know, the highest levels we've seen in a short time. You know, in a limited time here on the VIX. So again, yeah. I think that people are very uh, tepid as they go into it. It's not a, I have to be all in. I just want to mention a headline since we're speaking. Apple. Apple said to give employees a twenty five hundred dollar bonus uh, after the new tax law, telling employees uh, today that it's issuing that bonus uh, twenty five hundred dollars worth of restricted stock units. Um, this is according to people familiar. We just put that story out, uh, Corey. Again, a bonus is a one-time thing. A, yep. a raise a is something cost. that will stick with you. Yeah. Right. Well, although they are, in fairness, they, they did estimate they're going to add $350 billion to the U.S. economy over five years. That should be something that pays off not only for Apple employees, but for many employees of all companies that contribute to their products. Again, we'll have to wait and see, but that's a real positive, and it's tough not to be positive when you see things like that. JJ, I'm assuming you guys have strategy sessions over at TD Ameritrade, and you look at what happened in terms of the equity markets in 2017, and we really saw a lot of global equity markets kind of synchronized gains, if you will. What's the, what's the list of risks that you come up with? Really serious ones. Just got about 35 seconds here. 
Okay, well, I, I will tell you this. I, I, the the uh, bit of exuberance, I think, is part of it. And earnings not being able to support the price levels. Uh, we, 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 the, the biggest thing I think we need to see over the next two weeks, you'll see it, is earnings continuing so that we don't get in the, you know, low to mid-20s on these PEs, or I should say mid-20s on these PEs. I think that's a big risk. And, of course, there's always the, you know, risks you can't put your finger on in terms of, like, North Korea and things like that. Right. But we've had a market that shrugs off an awful lot of stuff. It really does. And, and, and yeah. the last risk being when people go to buy the dip, if we continue down, do they turn to sellers and actually exasperate the down move? All right. J.J. Kinahan, Chief Market Strategist at TD Ameritrade, on the phone from Chicago. $1.1 trillion in assets under management. Move around. Motion creates emotion. I feel the earth move under my feet. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. Shake. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. Something's called movers and shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers, with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, time for a look at some of the stocks moving in the Wednesday trade. I'm Carol Master along with Corey Johnson. S&P 500, most names, 425 higher in today's session, 75 lower, five unchanged. Let's talk a little bit about General Electric, if we may. It is the number four decliner in the S&P 500. That stock down 4.7% in today's trade, down 86 cents to $17.35 a share. Shares of GE, which had seen a little bit of an uptick in this new year, now down about six-tenths of a percent. That, Corey, is on top of a 45% decline Decline, excuse me, uh, in 2017. Shares of GE, uh, the slide deepening after a $6.2 billion charge and comments by the company's CEO, renewed talk of a potential breakup. We were talking about this a lot yesterday. Uh, this week's larger-than-expected write-down tied to an old insurance portfolio, really stoking shareholders' concerns about the scope of the problems plaguing uh, General Electric and the latest stock slide erasing a modest rally, as I mentioned, that we saw during the first two weeks of this year. And last year's decline in shares of GE, it was the worst in almost a decade. So that decline kind of continuing, if you will, certainly in today's trade. And we saw, you know, we saw that yesterday, sorry, excuse me, we talked to John Thompson <coughs> last week saying, yeah. GE, please just do nothing. Stop. <laughs> Whatever you're trying to Stop. Do. <coughs> uh, chokes okay? me up. It okay? makes me so sad. To see I, the troubles of GE. I'd pat you on the back if I could. Uh, I know you would. Uh, Ethan Allen, uh, again, yeah. hit today, down 7% today, the interior design, of course, company. Um, uh, uh, hitting Briefly hitting the entire sector, uh, but closing the day down 7.3% after reporting a weak quarter. Uh, two key results, uh, they said the prelim- uh, they pre-announced, and so those results are uh, going to be below estimates and below their guidance as well. Um, and briefly, it pulled on everybody in the furniture business, uh, Bassett, uh, uh, Lazy Boy, um, many others, as well as some of the home good retailers. But uh, what we saw is that uh, they just had softer than expected results. Um, a number of their initiatives, understand that this is a company that a lot of people thought was going to turn around. A lot of their initiatives not paying off at Ethan Allen, and this pre-announcement sort of proving that. The company has already had seen four consecutive quarters of declining sales, but the expectation was a turnaround had occurred. Uh, and that uh, the quarter uh, a year ago that was at $195 million, call it, uh, would uh, be beat by a $205 million quarter. But now the expectation is that it could be a lot 
worse than that and that the turnaround isn't really working for them uh, and some rebranding as well. But, uh, you know, Ethan Allen's a pretty big company. And, uh, and there's also belief that the rise in GDP would, and, and, and indeed people, uh, rich people with tax cuts might actually go there and buy some furniture. That has not been the case uh, as well. Today's shares of Bassett Furniture fell. Haverty fell. Uh, container store down 9% today. Uh, Kirkland's Pier 1 all down as well as uh, Restoration Hardware. RH, as it likes to be called now. (laughs) RH, that's right. Uh, Check out ASML uh, Holding because that stock rallied in today's session up about uh, the ADR, I should say, uh, up about 6.9%. ASML shares hitting a record uh, as sales of its flagship extreme ultraviolet lithography systems, which cost a mere $122.5 million, uh, topped $1.35 billion last year. So uh, they're, of course, a Dutch supplier of tools and equipment for the semiconductor industry. Yeah, so that's a, so tra- this is stuff that actually burns in the circuits into a sem- inside of a mm-hmm. semiconductor so that uh, using light, they can sort of uh, move bits and bites uh, within the semiconductor itself. So a stronger-than-expected fourth-quarter earnings really reviving prospects to a renewed super cycle in global chip demand, and everybody that the chip uh, group piled in. So AMAT, um, Texas Instruments, and um, KLA 10-Core also higher in today's session. In fact, Texas Instruments, uh, KLA 10-Core, and AMAT, Corey, were your top three gainers in the S&P 500 today. And it's really quick, a company called Halozyme, a uh, big uh, San Diego-based. Research, too. Sorry. That was the number one gainer in the S&P. Uh, thank you. Uh, uh, Halozyme Therapeutics, biotech company out of San Diego, uh, focused on the cancer business, among other things, but lots of different stuff, diabetes, cancer, dermatology. Uh, but the stock was down 9% today, a big decline in this uh, $2.5 billion company uh, after uh, one of their chemotherapy drugs, uh, some results out really showing that uh, the results were just not strong and that some of the other things, uh, uh, the effect on some patients was good on top of an already highly toxic drug that it was taken with. And so uh, the combination uh, saw a lot of people see that potentially big drug for uh, Halozyme not there for them. And uh, the result was a stock falling at 9% on the day. So with records on Wall Street, Corey, what would you have expected the VIX did today? Well, I'd expect the VIX to be up. Well, it is up. Because, you know, when stocks move, there's possibility of some more excitement uh, in the VIX. All right. Well, the VIX is up 1.5% after an almost 15% in yesterday's trade. The VIX closing at 118 Wow, big move in the VIX today. Yep. This is Bloomberg. All right. Dave, you're up. Uh, hi. Uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? Wilson! Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for the price on Wilson. Open up the door. It's Dave. Who? Dave. Hey, Dave Wilson joins us right now with his stock of the day. And that would be FTD, Corey. This is a retailer of flowers and gifts. Oh, I know. Oh, yeah. It's been in and out of the stock market for the last couple of decades. The current stint began after a spinoff in late 2013. FTD shares trade under the ticker, as you might expect, FTD. They tumbled 70% last year and set a record low in December. Earnings and sales shortfalls were behind the stock's plunge. And the latest one occurred today when FTD met with investors. company provided an estimate of last year's adjusted EBITDA, that's earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, 
along with a forecast for this year. Now, FTD called for adjusted EBITDA to decline as much as 36% to $52 million. Craig Hallam analyst Alex Furman wrote in a report that the dollar figure was well below consensus estimates. Company also said it may sell a unit that supplies personalized gifts. Now, FTD's outlook sent its shares to their biggest one-day decline since last March. They fell almost 19% on the day. From Downers Grove, Illinois. Man, they put the Downers in Downers Grove. Thank you very much, Dave Wilson. Do they, Corey Jetson, really? They, yes, they do. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV. 